Trust me, I'm like a smart person. From The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast where we ask the academic experts to surprise, delight and inform us with their research. I'm Sananda Cray. And what I'm here today to announce is that before we go to the next election, we will be handing down a budget. And it will be a surplus budget. There will be an election this year. We're ready. We're united. We're looking forward to the challenge of offering a positive program for It's February, the holidays seem like a distant memory, and here we are barrelling towards a federal election, which the government has indicated will be in May. Remember in the olden days, like a few elections ago, we used to have a fairly set election campaign period of usually about six weeks. Now, of course, politicians seem to always be in campaign mode, out there delivering their daily talking points, taking potshots at each other, and crafting every aspect of their political messaging. They're not doing that all by themselves, of course. There's a small army of spin doctors, social media strategists, political campaign advisers and press secretaries behind the scenes, finessing every soundbite so it fits with the overall campaign strategy. And that's what we're here to talk about today, the art of political spin. We'll hear from Caroline Fisher, a political communication and journalism researcher from the University of Canberra. She began her career as a journalist with the ABC, but went on to work as a media advisor for Labor's Anna Bly, a former Queensland Premier. And today, she's talking to Michelle Grattan, political journalist and professorial fellow at the University of Canberra, about the tips and tricks that spin doctors use to shape the political messages that you're hearing every day. In the lead-up to an election, there is a lot of focus on on packaging the message, on refining the message, etc. But I must say, increasingly outside of election periods, a similar level of intensity is happening every day. And this is the continuous campaign, isn't it? The permanent campaign that's become so much a part of our recent politics. Absolutely. So, you know, you'll see and you'll hear commentary about the fact that politicians are constantly using talking points, um, this centralised control from from head office, whether it's the leader's office or whether it's the campaign office, people sticking, staying on message, a lot of use of um, focus groups and, and research to refine messages and they will, they will change their messages on the day in order to reflect uh, the outcome of focus groups and whether slogans are popular or not. So this type of kind of professional refining of messages is happening all the time. And who's involved in crafting these messages? Who are the spin merchants? What's the qualification to become a spin merchant? It's a, it's a broad term, and I think it's an, it's an umbrella term for a range of professional communications roles. So, you know, starting at sort of the press secretarial level, I guess, you know, you might go and work in a politician's office as a former press secretary. Former journalist, maybe. Often a former journalist. Some come from um, public relations backgrounds, some even from the public service. On the whole, they tend to have some, you know, a journalistic background. But now with social media... One of the things that they look for is people with social media expertise as well. So it might be that you come on not as a press secretary uh, per se, but maybe as a social media advisor. And it does seem that this is one of the nation's sunrise industries, isn't it? Whether it's political communication or business communication, more and more people have become involved. It wasn't like this... 40, 50 years ago, was it? Well, it really started to build in the 1980s. It really did, you know, when this, these um, commercial uh, tools of communication that were used in, in, in marketing, etc. Such then as be- polling. 
such as polling, exactly, and even just packaging and, and the use of slogans and this, you know, advertising and this slick way of presenting information, uh, refining messages. Um, these techniques then began, were adopted into, you know, what we call the public sphere, into political discourse. And that's where the concern has been, you know, that this has kind of, you know, deteriorated the public sphere by, by using these commercial kind of um, tactics and techniques. Do you think that's right? Uh, to an extent, yes, I do. But... <sighs> One of the problems is, is is that, you know, nothing happens in isolation. Uh, all of this has happened in response to changes in technology and the whole rate of communication speeding up. So, you know, if you're if you're a politician um, and you're working, you, you can't just keep working in, in the mass media, you know, or, or transistor wireless era or newspaper era. You've got to adapt to the new technologies which are happening faster, etc., which requires you to be even sharper with your messaging, quicker with your messaging. It changes the tactics that you use. Just let's explore some of those tactics that political parties currently use. What's in at the moment? What's the the fashionable set of tactics? Fashionable set of tactics. I think in many ways that some of them are fairly timeless because it is about having key messages. So one of those things is you know endless boring repetition, banging on three key messages. Um, there's a thing called the vomit principle that in political offices, you know, it's not until you actually feel sick that actually you know that the uh, that the message is probably even cutting through with the public. On jobs and growth, jobs and growth, and that's jobs, good jobs and better jobs. For what I promise the families of Australia is you will not be the forgotten families of Australia under a Labor government. Yeah, yeah. We will make families an issue. Uh, so absolute repetition, staying on message, yeah, yeah. those dreaded talking points. Um, I think one of the things, particularly with social media, actually, is, is, is actually trying to be authentic. Um, which in itself is quite calculated. Um, one of the appeals of social media is that you get to be yourself, you know, that you get to frame yourself, that you get to, get to be more in control of your of your messaging and your imaging. Um, but it's quite a contrived form of authenticity. Um, fake authenticity? Fake authenticity, that's right. It's a, it's a tactic in itself to be authentic, and I think that's something that people really do strive for at the moment. So you see it all the time now in these, you know, in these direct videos and things of, you know, people sitting on their desk and talking to the public directly. Like Scott Morrison, yes. he's put out... Quite a few already, I think, or yes. several already. G'day. You may have heard of the Canberra bubble. The Canberra bubble is what happens down here. Labor plans to abolish negative gearing as we know it and to double capital gains tax on profit. So that's the latest tactic in a sense, you know, is, is, to, is to bypass the media and be able to publish directly, you know, to the electorate uh, and target your messages that way. So in many respects, so the whole idea of spin and spin tactics is something that emerged in the mass media era, you know, and was a way of trying to circumvent the control of the mass media because they were the gatekeepers. You could not get your, your message out there unless you went through mass media uh, platforms like a newspaper or a TV station. That, of course, that whole power uh, dynamic has shifted and politicians are their own publishing houses now and they have much more control depending on who they want to reach if you know they still need mass media to reach a very wide section of the audience if they're wanting if they're a mass party looking for that that you know the bulk of the population if you're a fringe party or someone with a strong youth demographic you might not need them so much in which case you know the way you approach and use social media becomes much more important every one of us deserves the opportunity to live a good life but for too long now, both the major parties have got their economic priorities very wrong. Certainly, um, I would think in relation to the Greens, for instance, uh, social media would be much more important uh, than mass media. Yeah, well, for, for a start, um, when you think about a lot of the coverage that's received, for instance, in the Murdoch press, which is quite hostile, it actually doesn't do them any favours, uh, you know, to seek to be published in the Murdoch press. So rather than build strong relationships there, you might seek to uh, build uh, stronger relationships with 
new digital-born brands like the Huffington Post or BuzzFeed, which have a younger demographic. And of course, a lot of people are on social. And so that's that's where they will try to target. So for them, not you know, yes, they need a degree of broad appeal, but they do pretty well by, you know, having a strong focus on social media. But I wonder in the age of so much distrust of politicians, so much cynicism by the voters, even the social media pitch, surely people are inclined to turn off and just see it as another another politician sitting there blaring on? Or is that not the case? I would suspect so. Um, like you know, there's always a core of kind of political junkies on every medium. Uh, we know from our own research, from our research centre, we do a, an annual um, survey of uh, people's news consumption in Australia called the Digital News Report Australia. And, uh, you know, there's not very high political interest um, in in news in Australia. However, uh, the people who follow politicians and political parties and journalists, etc., news organisations, those who actually subscribe and, and click and follow those uh, sources online have are very highly engaged and have very high uh, interest. But I'm thinking of the marginal voter in the marginal seat, the swinging voter who is distrustful of mm-hmm. politics, not um, particularly engaged in the political discourse, how are they being reached by the parties these days? Is Are they very uh, strong targets for social media or what about the slightly older form of direct mail? Does that yeah, work absolutely. for them? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the thing. It's not one or the other. I mean, we're just in this kind of hybrid environment, you know, where we have this range of platforms. Look, in fact, I think you'll find that, you know, nothing replaces door knocking. It doesn't matter how many followers you have on Twitter, but if you turn up and knock on someone's door and actually speaks to them face-to-face, it's going to have a much bigger impact. So I think all of that, you know, wearing out the, the, the boot leather, um, direct mail, all of those old-fashioned techniques uh, are still very much in play and are really influential. That's interesting. I would have thought maybe in, in this age that people are less responsive to people coming to the door, but you say it's a well, pretty good way to get to them. When, uh, you know, speaking to people from political parties and the sorts of techniques that they still use when I've raised this question with them about social media or it's never one or the other. It's still a combination of all of these uh, different approaches now. In terms of the difference in tactics between the major and the minor parties, often the minor parties are associated with particular names, aren't they? Like the Nick Xenophon party was uh, not not uh, anymore, of course, because uh, it, it blew out. But how did they appeal? Do they... Is it important for them to have ads with the leader uh, projecting a message or are other techniques well, useful? I mean, it's interesting you should raise Nick Xenophon as an example because I think his Bollywood musical uh, political ad from the last election was, you know, it would have to go down in history as a disaster. The state is going backwards. Let's stop that in its tracks. A true blue caring party. That's what SA Stop soaring power. And it's one of these terrible examples of trying to be authentic. It's like Theresa May, the, you know, the British Prime Minister, dancing, trying to look a bit hip. Uh, it's almost trying too hard. So in that sense, I think he really misfired with that particular um, ad. 
Look, um, I think when it comes to advertising, yes, it's about key messages. Um, it, de- it depends on where it is in the campaign. You'll often, you know, they'll try to personalise. They'll try to get their key messages across. They'll try to, you know, to 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 spruik, you know, what's in it for you. And then, of course, depending on how the campaign's going, they'll come in with a dreadful uh, scaremongering uh, ads, you know, towards the end of the campaign. I'm Mark Latham, former Labor Party leader. Nice to meet you. Yes. Mark Latham's teamed with Pauline Hanson to pepper telephones in the ultra-marginal Queensland seat of Longman with a recorded message. I've had personal experience with Bill Shorten's dishonesty. He just lies and lies and lies. Latham's intervention... Well, we've obviously uh, reached the era of uh, social media and robocalls. Just on robocalls... Do you think these turn off people? Do you think that there's something somewhat offensive in in a disembodied voice ringing you up at dinner time and just talking at you? You can't shout back at them. You can't ask them any questions. Look, it's I don't you know I don't know the the real answer to that, but I have been doing research on this just recently in, in relation to AI and the role of AI in communications. And there have been surveys done. I mean, they're in America, admittedly which show that actually people don't mind talking to robots. Um, as long as they know it's a robot, it's been declared, they actually don't mind. In fact, because it's quicker, they're not going to get engaged in conversation. Invariably, they ring just before dinner. <laughs> uh, so, in fact, they find it less intrusive and they just, you know, they do it and get on with it. They don't mind as long as they know it's it's a robot. Uh, it's possible that people, some people find it a turn-off. It's also possible that some people find it a relief and it's easy and it's quick. At what point does spin become propaganda? At what point is this really counterproductive for the democratic system? Well, you know, partly this comes down to what's your definition of spin? You know, what is spin? Uh, It's framing. It's how do you frame the message? It's rhetoric. I mean, these are as old as Aristotle. I mean, you know, a a politician trying to um, advocate their their view of the world is is at the core of politics. Is there something inherently wrong with that? Absolutely not. Where does it become insidious? Where does it become damaging is when there's no scrutiny applied, when they can get away with it without being questioned. And I think uh, that in the past, there was a much better job, you know, because of the control of the mass media as the gatekeeper at keeping a check on that and, and hopefully um, being able to put in third party voices, critical voices within, you know, within each story. Um, I think that we probably had a better go at keeping that in check in the past. I think, though, now with social media, uh, you know, when a politician puts a post out on social media and if it gets shared, well, it is just it's just political advertising. It is just propaganda because there is no counter message there. You know, a politician doesn't put out a message and and include the counter view. It's only putting its foot forward. And unless you're inquiring and, and looking for the alternative view, you're not necessarily going to find it. So I think that the danger of it being purely propaganda is in the way that the message now is transmitted, which can bypass all of those filters. It's possible that the crowd, you know, that the audience might talk back and might be a form of criticism, but from the point, you know, at the actual point of publishing that message, there is no filter. So if you're the ordinary voter, what can you do to counter this industry that is now there to manipulate you? (laughs) Oh, gosh, it's so cynical. Um, Okay, so what you need to do, it doesn't, you know, a couple of things. If you rely on the mainstream news media, you need to look beyond the TV news bulletin. You know, the whole point of spin, the reason why these techniques evolved was about politicians trying to, you know, have maximum control over 
over the message, okay? And they had to fit into, you know, the length of a TV news story, the length of a, a column inch. So the 10-second grab, these very truncated ways of expressing things, um, you know, were developed, hence, you know, these spin techniques. So all you're ever going to see on the mainstream media in a news bulletin, on a newspaper, on a radio bulletin is a very, very truncated version of what happened and not necessarily the key message that the politician or the party were trying to get out. The media get bored very quickly and they will move on. Um, if, if every day the government or the opposition wants to come out and go jobs, 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 and that's the only message they want to put out everywhere they go, well, the media will look for another story because they're bored with that, even though that's the key, you know, the key leg of the campaign, the key, you know, underpinning the whole campaign. The media will get bored and move on. So, Yes, okay, watch, watch the, the main evening news bulletin, but you must go further. Go now to social media, go to their web pages, look at the press conference in full, read the full, the full transcript of the speech. Um, go to the third parties, the, the people who are affected by these policies and see what their reaction is. You're only going to get, and have always only got a small snippet in the mainstream news media, but you now have the ability to go and see it in the raw. I really encourage you to do that. If you rely on social media for news, I really, really strongly advise you to to take special note of where, what is the source of that information? You know, is it a post directly from a politician or a party, in which case it's an ad, um, effectively? Or, you know, is it a newspaper article that a politician has shared? Okay, well, what that says is that this, they've shared that article because it enhances their argument, all right? So they are not putting two sides of an argument. They're only doing advocacy work for themselves. So, again, you must look beyond. You must go and burst your bubble and look for the counter-arguments. Uh, it's the only way. Sounds to me like elections are hard work. Exhausting. It's only getting harder. <laughs> Even for the voters. Especially. You've studied at length political tactics. Are there any that are particularly offensive to you? <laughs> um, yes, there are a couple that are particularly offensive to me. Um, if I put myself in the in the position of, of, a, of a news consumer, of someone trying to get information, I, I mean that relentless, boring use of repetitive talking points, I just find mind numbing. And and there, you know, and, and and of course that means that they don't speak naturally. You just want to hear a politician, for God's sake, speak naturally and speak their mind. I know they've got to you know keep within the bounds of party policy, etc. But they can sound like a human being and not like a robot. Um, and again, so coming up with those awful, um, you know, zingers, really, those terrible, you know, 10-second grabs, which are just so inauthentic. But, of course, Bill Shorten wasn't going to let that slip by without firing <laughs> off one of his trademark zingers. And, and this is a first for Bill, a killer one-liner for two targets. Unfortunately, now it would appear that we have two Prime Ministers in Australia, Prime Minister Abbott and Prime Minister Palmer. And again, uh, I really loathe that the, the resort to partisanship immediately, you know, attacking the opposition without really having a genuine attempt at trying to answer the question and putting it, you know, their positive alternative. I find that really, really boring. And I think people turn off immediately from that. I think one of the things that bothers me most and I would be really wary of, and I think it's increasing, is, is you know, if you see the term exclusive on a political story, I think it's happening more and more. And, in, it, you know, and what does that mean? On the whole, um, and I'm not trying to offend political journalists out there, but the, the the increasing use of exclusive normally means you've been given a drop or a leak in exchange for no scrutiny. 
that is something that I think really has changed over time. Uh, I don't, you know, you used to give um, stories to journalists in the past, but I, I, I think that whole notion of doing it in exchange for not seeking third-party comment, uh, I think that is a growing trend and I think that really, you know, I find that really worrying. So I think if you see exclusive on a political uh, story, I would, uh, I'd, you know, I'd be very cautious. <laughs> Thanks very much. My pleasure. was Caroline Fisher talking to Michelle Grattan. You can read Caroline's article on the spin tactics used in political messaging on theconversation.com. Just Google The Conversation, Caroline Fisher and spin tactics. And special thanks to Eliza Balage for recording that interview. Well, I, I don't share your assessment of, of us preparing because what we're doing is putting the budget back into a positive balance and reducing the debt. Now, on top of that, we have the strongest... But on Tuesday night, I do not remember hearing the Treasurer admit that national debt has more than doubled under the Liberals. All year round, but especially during election season, you're going to hear a lot of competing claims about the state of our economy. Has school funding been cut... Or is it at a record high? Do tax cuts make the economy better or worse? Why is the government and the opposition saying seemingly contradictory things about the state of our debt and deficit? To find out, Lucinda Beeman, who used to be our fact-check editor but has just moved to the ABC, spoke to Fabrizio Carmignani. My name is Fabrizio Carmignani. I'm a professor of economics in the Griffith Business School, Griffith University. Fabrizio has authored many fact-check articles for The Conversation, where he tests statements by key public figures against the evidence. And his special superpower is pulling back the curtain to reveal why certain claims you hear about the economy really don't stand up to scrutiny. Here's one example. In election season, politicians, especially those in opposition, love to talk about cuts. So Lucinda Beeman began by asking Fabrizio if a cut is always a cut. Not necessarily. It depends on what kind of data we are looking at. And very often what we observe is that actual expenditure is below what was in the uh, forward forecast, uh, but it is still higher than what it was in the past. So there is an increase in terms of actual dollars spent, but this increase is smaller than what was anticipated at the time of uh, the formulation of the budget. We also have to be aware of the fact that sometimes uh, what it looks like a cut in, say, per capita terms might in fact correspond to an increase in dollar terms. So before we say that there is a cut, we have to be a bit more specific about the unit of measurement that we are looking at. I mean, and we all know that there's so much more to a good education than the funding, but we're still putting in $23 billion more. All right. Ending the That's school only funding. Compared. Suppose that we are looking at the budget and uh, we have a current level of expenditure of $100. In, in the forecasts that were formulated at the time 
of uh, the budget, we expect an increase in uh, this expenditure to $110. Uh, the actual increase in expenditure is only up to $105. So we have an increase of $5 in real terms. So there have been five extra dollars being spent on that particular item. But this increase is smaller than what was originally anticipated, which was $10. So you can look at this in two ways. Someone might say it is a cut because you're increasing expenditure by less than what was anticipated. Someone might say that it's an increase in expenditure because you're actually spending $5 more than what you spent last year. We see that happening um, and we've seen it happening recently in terms of education funding and aged care spending where we've had the opposition talking about cuts being made and the government talking about um, growth in spending. And, and often in these types of debates, there'll be discussions of record levels of spending. Should we always be impressed by claims about record levels of spending? I don't think that we should always be impressed. Again, it depends very much on what we are using as a benchmark to establish that a certain level of spending is a record spending. Um, we also have to consider that in particular for some expenditure items, it is normal to see uh, expenditure going up over time. It is normal because there is an increase in population, uh, because there is a, an expansion of the economy, uh, because there is uh, a, an inflation process that requires the actual number of dollars being spent to increase over time. So the number, the total number, might increase over time. I wouldn't say that this is something that we should always be impressed or, or particularly uh, worried about. Can you remind us what is the difference between causation and correlation? Well, correlation is a situation where two things happen more or less at the same time. Well, the fact that they happen at the same time doesn't necessarily mean that one is causing the other. Unfortunately, the confusion between correlation and causation is very common when looking at economic data. We had a great example of this in a fact check you wrote about corporate tax cuts in the US and the impact they may or may not have had on the US economy. Here's what Finance Minister Matthias Cormann said on RN Breakfast. The, the evidence on the ground is very clear. Uh, the uh, Trump uh, tax cuts have led to stronger investment, to stronger growth, uh, to uh, lower unemployment rate and uh, to higher wages. So can you tell me what you found in your fact check? This is a situation where really the difference between correlation and, and causality is, is very clear. What we had uh, was an improvement in economic indicators in the United States in uh, uh, trimester one and trimester two, 2018. At the same time, because the uh, corporate tax cut was introduced at the beginning of 2018, uh, some um, politicians as well as some um, you know, commentators came to the conclusion that the corporate tax cuts had caused the improvement in the economic indicators. Uh, but in fact, economic indicators in the US were going up, were improving already in 2017, so before the introduction of the tax cut. Second, we have to remember that a measure like cutting taxes takes time to affect the economy. You don't cut taxes today and generate uh, an improvement in gross domestic product or employment tomorrow. So talking about causality between a policy measure that uh, is introduced at the beginning of the year and economic indicators that improve in the first three to four months of the year does not really make much economic sense. We also 
hear a lot of politicians claiming credit for job creation. The great success stories of the coalition government has been the fact that we've created uh, nearly 1.2 million new jobs. Do we need to be wary about those claims? We certainly need to be wary about those claims for, for, for a very simple reason. Changes in, in employment or, or changes in any measure of the real economy uh, are driven by many factors. And, and government policy is certainly one of these factors, but not the only one. So you can have, a, for instance, an increase in employment during a, a particular period of time and this increase in employment might be driven maybe not so much by government policy, but it might be driven by the global business cycle. Uh, you know, things are going so well in the United States and therefore employment uh, in, in, in other economies will go up. So uh, whenever we, we look at uh, changes in economic indicators of a given a period of time, again, we can probably establish a correlation between uh, these employment indicators and the fact that there was uh, a certain government in office at the time. But we cannot, just based on this, on this observation, come to the conclusion that employment increased only because of the policies implemented by that government. There could be many other factors. Even if the policies were because of the actions of that government, you would think it would take some time to flow through, as you said. Th th that's another important problem. Often, well, especially in the last few years, we know that the duration, the average duration of governments in office here in Australia is not that long. Um, it does take time for any policy to have a, a visible impact on uh, uh, real economic measures like gross domestic product or uh, employment or unemployment. That doesn't mean that government policy is ineffective. On the contrary, government policy can have an, an important impact. But, you know, uh, claiming that a certain government has created one million jobs only because during the tenure in office of that government, the employment data showing increase by one million is an overstatement. Fabrizio, what else should we be wary of? Well, I think that one uh, frequent, uh, not mistake, but misunderstanding in, in general is about fiscal policy and the budget. I would like to remind everyone that the budget is a tool. The ultimate goal, the ultimate end of fiscal policy is not to balance the budget or is not to determine a certain surplus or deficit in the budget. The ultimate end of fiscal policy is to support welfare and prosperity in the community. The budget is a tool that has to be used flexibly in order to achieve uh, greater welfare uh, in the community. So sometimes the discussion around fiscal policy, debt and deficit, seems to be uh, a bit too much focused on uh, as achieving a certain uh, level of, of uh, the balance of the budget or a certain level of the debt to GDP ratio. Well, I would like the discussion to be focused more on how we can use these tools, deficit, debt, budget, in order to promote uh, growth and prosperity in the economy. Is there anything else that makes you raise your eyebrows when you're listening to economic commentary? Um, I have to say that often the, the quality of economic uh, uh, commentary in the media is very good. I would say that uh, what is important to remember is always that uh, the data can be read in different ways and therefore uh, we always have to be very careful in the interpretation of the data and sometimes 
sometimes we need to trust uh, statistical methodologies that are a bit more complicated in order in order to make sense of the data in a sense this is if you want a call for the audience to trust economists uh, and to trust their methodologies even though i know that sometimes uh, the audience can see us as sort of um, uh, you know working on a with a black box or, or doing some sort of witchcraft. Uh, the methodologies that have been developed are uh, methodologies that allow us to have a real and, and meaningful interpretation of the data and avoid the mistakes that we have been discussing today. In terms of how data is presented to us, you know, if we're trying to interpret information through graphs or charts, what kind of tips do you have for us? You know, there can be funny business with the y-axis. I've seen that before. The unit of measurement is probably one of the things that I would be most care- most careful about. The unit of measurement which is displayed in one of the axes can significantly influence the, the, the path and the configuration of the chart and therefore the interpretation of the chart. We have to make sure that the unit of measurement on the horizontal axis is consistent and meaningful uh, in relation to the unit of measurement on the y-axis and vice versa. The other thing is that often we have to remember that charts and and graph present two dimensions only. And in reality, the economy consists of many dimensions. And therefore, a chart is a simplified representation of dynamics. Again, a chart can be very good to establish correlation. It doesn't necessarily establish causality. What are some of your tips for our listeners uh, for assessing economic claims in the lead up to all these elections? The general advice is to be sceptical. We should always question the interpretation of the data and always look for more information or for some additional fact checks before coming to conclusions on economic policy or economic dynamics. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation where we bring you the stories, ideas and insights from the world of academic research. It's produced by me, Sananda Cray. Special thanks today to Eliza Berlage and Lucinda Beeman and to Caroline Fisher from the University of Canberra and Michelle Grattan, Professorial Fellow at the University of Canberra and to Fabrizio Carmignani from Griffith University. Thank you also to The Conversation's multimedia intern, Dil Precourt, who's been an excellent help to Trust Me, I'm an Expert in the last few months. And if you haven't heard the episode she did for us on the science and economics of sleep, I really recommend you go back and listen to it. It's really good. Our theme beats are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks, and we've used music from Free Music Archive. You can see a full list of music credits on our website at theconversation.com. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is out every month. Find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review while you're there. Chat to you next month.